You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast today is Christopher Seifel of Seifel Capital. Uh, Christopher founded Seifel Capital after a career investing in private markets with the goal of bringing a private equity approach to public markets. Um, he publishes a really excellent newsletter on investments at SeifelCapital.com if you are interested in reading more. Um, we had a really great conversation. Uh, I let Chris uh, get on his soapbox about what's been going on with GameStop and all the short selling volatility in the marketplace. We also talk about the geopolitics of artificial intelligence and semiconductors before playing y'all's favorite game over under at the end. Uh, We recorded this on Friday, February 5th. I believe it's coming out in about two weeks time. Um, I don't think there was anything particularly um, time sensitive in this thing. Um, But if you're thinking about where markets are two weeks from now, and if anything seems outdated, that's the reason why. Uh, listeners, a huge thank you for those of you who have left ratings uh, for the Perch Pod. We we reached our goal at the end of January to hit um, to get over 75. I'm not sure what the next goal is with. I need to talk to our producers to figure out what's next. But the more you can share the podcast with your network, with your friends, it's appreciated. As always, you can write to us at info at perchperspectives.com. If you want to just say hello, that's fine. Maybe maximally, though, you want to reach out and talk to me or somebody on our team about the insights that Perch Perspectives provides and the ways that we can allow you to start taking control over the geopolitical risk environment that your business or your investments are facing rather than constantly having to play defense and being on your back foot. Okay, without further ado, let's get on to Chris. Cheers. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, we met through Cousin Marco, who was just on the show a couple episodes ago, so happy to have you on get some uh, investment insights from you. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. I'm excited to talk to you today and really glad that Marco connected us. You know, we have uh, macro has always been an interest of mine. Uh, Unfortunately, haven't been able to apply it too much. So really excited to learn from you and, you know, chat about some things that are going on in the world today. (laughs) I don't know if you're going to learn that much from me. I'm I'm (laughs) number one of coffee, so I'm expecting to get increasingly more energetic as we go here. Um, There we go. See how we go. Um. Well, look, before we, I, I really wanted to pick your brain, especially about artificial intelligence, because you just did a great primer on artificial intelligence um, on your website that maybe we can talk about in a little bit. But I know that you have some strong feelings about what's been happening um, in the stock market the last week with the short squeezes and GameStop, and all this other stuff that's going on. So I wanted to, to let you get on the soapbox and tell me, I don't need, I, and listeners, I don't know what he's about to say. He, so Chris, here's your soapbox. How are you feeling about all this, man? For any of the listeners who may have missed really what happened, there's uh, a stock among others, uh, the stock GameStop that had a very high short interest, meaning that there were more, uh, more investors that had short shares, meaning they expected the price to go down. Uh, then there were actually buyers in the name. Mm-hmm. So these people on uh, Wall Street Bets, some Reddit subthread, actually, you know, pretty smartly identified this and realized that, well, if there are a, an adequate number of people buying the stock, then there's not going to be an opportunity, one, for whoever is short the name to get out, but also it's going to force the stock higher through two different methods. One is either shorts covering, meaning there's more buying pressure on the stock. 
And in the short term, you know, stock movements are all just supply and demand. So that would be one side of it. And the other side is what's called a gamma squeeze. Uh, a gamma squeeze, I'll, I won't get into the technicals of it, but it essentially comes down to how options are priced. And so when the stock keeps going up, the value of the call options are going to be going up and you get this, uh, I'll call it a negative feedback loop <laughs> of an ever-increasing price. And so that's why you saw GameStop go from, man, was in the, maybe in the 20s uh, up to a high of 480. So that's kind of the lay of the land, right? And what happened was you had people like Mark Cuban and Chamath Palihapitiya go on CNBC and, you know, talk about how great of an event this was because there was one hedge fund in particular that was in the limelight, uh, Melvin Capital, which is uh, the fund started by Gabe Plotkin, who's actually uh, Steve Cohen uh, protege. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were really happy about it. The fact that this firm was down up to 50% on the year. So just in a month's time, just because of this trade. Uh, and so, you know, they were they were happy about this. And I think there was a lot of misperceptions out there because one, there were many short sellers in the name, not just uh, Melvin, right? There was also uh, Citron was short, which is a famous, you know, short research shop, which they're not going to be doing short research anymore. But there were many short sellers in the name and people thought that it was just as one firm that was short over 100% of the float, which just intuitively makes no sense, right? So that was kind of one side of it. And then uh, when you had Mark Cuban and Chamath going on you know, CNBC and publicly saying, you know, this is a good thing. This is showing how you know, retail traders are going to be dominant now and et cetera, et cetera. What was very negligent, I feel, was that there was no real focus on educating the public or these retail traders on really what was happening and how to value a stock, right? So I am not the end-all be-all on valuation. The A stock's you know, price and, and value at a certain time is the balance of supply and demand. However, over time, you know, uh, it's the classic... Uh, I think it's a Buffett quote, right? In the short term, the market's a voting machine. Long term, it's a weighing machine. Whoever was buying, whatever retail buyer was buying at 480 and the stock's now down to 80, they lost their shirt. But they were encouraged by these, you know, very public figures that should be having their back. So I think it was very negligent on the part of Chamath and Mark Cuban, who Cuban even said on CNBC, like, I think it's a zero. <laughs> he was like, I think it's going to go bankrupt. And he's encouraging people to hold it. It doesn't make any sense to me. So then the last part of it was it came down to this uproar over uh, Robinhood preventing or restricting buying of GameStop. Now, there are many, there are a few different facts that people ignored when it came to this situation. One is that Robinhood was not the only broker that prevented buying or restricted buying or even restricted trading in some form or fashion uh, of all like these e-brokers out there. You know, there's a famous, there's a very popular broker in China called Weeble. They did the same exact thing that Robinhood did. Uh, and then you had like the big shops like Charles Schwab, uh, Thinkorswim, TD Ameritrade, et cetera, 
they all had certain restrictions as well. And uh, the reason, and then the second point is, and I'll tell you why these restrictions were in place. Uh, the second thing is that GameStop wasn't the only stock that there were restrictions on. There were uh, maybe a dozen or so. There were up to 50 at one time for Robinhood that were in fact restricted uh, for this reason. And I'm going to start with the conspiracy theory and then tell you why it's it's completely wrong and, and fallacious. Um, the conspiracy theory was that Robinhood, they sell their order flow to Citadel, who's a, who's a market maker, right? And what people knew, they should have known, at least if they read their uh, customer agreements, is that the reason why Robinhood and these other brokers can be commission-free is because they're selling the order flow. They have to make revenue somehow. And actually, you know, my thoughts on order flow can be summarized in this, on uh, selling order flow can be summarized by this. Uh, I'm pretty sure Bernie Madoff actually invented this business model of selling order flow. Uh, that's all I have to say on that topic. But uh, when it came down to uh, Robin Hood, everyone was assuming some conspiracy theory that, you know, they had told Citadel that they're going to restrict buying on the stock so Citadel could get short again, which to really make this story even weirder, Citadel was one of the two firms along with Point72, which is run by Stephen Cohen, uh, that had to actually infuse capital, uh, $3 billion into Melvin Capital just so that they didn't go under. So there was a conspiracy theory that, you know, Robin Hood warned uh, Citadel that they were going to do this. So Citadel could get short again, and as soon as they restricted buying, Robinhood did, uh, the stock would go down and Citadel would make a bunch of money and it could flow through to Melvin somehow. Uh, it sounds great. sounds exciting. It's you know a great headline grabber, but it's not only really uh, a very small and minute probability of that happening, when you analyze the actual mechanics of the, of the market plumbing, you'll realize that it's a nonsensical statement. So uh, what I mean by that is this. Robinhood is a broker, but they also self-clear, right? So they pass all of their clearing through to the DTCC, which is just the, uh, one of the biggest clearinghouses, the biggest clearinghouse, I believe, in the market. And so the process of what happens here is that when you put in an order to Robinhood or any broker, there is two days between when that order is received and when the trade is settled, and what settlement means is just that there is a, a finalization of the trade. Someone receives uh, money or an asset in, uh, in return for another asset, right? So it takes two days for the clearing to happen. In order for the, the clearinghouse, which guarantees the trades, to ensure that they can actually finalize or settle the trades, they require the brokerages to put in deposits as collateral. And what happens is, is when either market volatility starts increasing or there are situations like with, uh, with GameStop, so we had both of these situations for GameStop, where there is a very high potential of loss, meaning that one counterparty, there's counterparty risk. One counterparty can't fulfill their side of the obligation. When one of those two or both of those events occur, the clearinghouse will raise their capital requirements or their deposit requirements to ensure that they can fulfill their side of the obligation, which is making sure people 
get uh, whatever their end of the trade is. So you have these, this dynamic going on with Robinhood having to put up excesses of more capital to the clearinghouses to make sure that the system can remain solvent. Meanwhile, they don't have enough capital because they're a very fast-growing firm. They don't have enough deposits on hand. So they had to go out and raise $3 billion themselves or something along those lines just so that they could stay liquid and solvent. People just seem to brush this aside and not and not realize the gravity of the situation and kept going on with this conspiracy theory that Robin Hood was some, uh, you know, they were in the bags of Citadel and Melvin and the hedge funds. Uh, so when you actually understand the true plumbing mechanics of what happened, which has happened many times in the past, uh, you realize that the conspiracy theory is not only nonsense, but it's it's actually very disingenuous to markets uh, because, you know, there was, there was, there may be still, I don't think so, but there was definitely somewhat of a, a probability, a small probability of some sort of contagion. Uh, if, you know, one of these brokers went under or if the clearinghouse couldn't uh, settle the trades, you know, there could have been panic in the markets. Uh, it could have happened. I don't think it's going to. Uh, but just understanding these dynamics, I think, is really important in doing the research. And I'll tell you this. I didn't understand any of this stuff until this event occurred, right? So I held my opinions until I figured all this stuff out by doing my own research. And I still don't know everything. Um, I could be wrong. But at least I've done the homework, right? And I have a fundamental understanding of the mechanics of the market and why when you take a probability ballistic approach to you know problem solving when you think about the probabilities of what happened with robin hood is it a higher probability that they truly had a cash crunch and they had to raise capital and in order to do that they had to stop trading on these names to ensure that their deposit requirements didn't keep going up or that there was some conspiracy with citadel and melvin capital i think that there's a much higher probability of the former than the latter yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Yep. Um, I, I would start by saying, you know, you, you talked about the fundamentals and knowing your facts. Like we live in a country right now where a U.S. congressman thinks that the Jews have a giant space laser that they create wildfires with in the state of California. So I thought just, that was true. Oh, it is? Yeah. <laughs> let, let me just uh, call the my co-conspirators and we'll, we'll zap something to, uh, just to help you out there. No, uh, but, you know, we, we, we're in an environment um, where information... Uh, it's hard to get a hands on. It's actually, you know, a lot of my business is analysis, but it has gotten so bad that the first thing that I have to do anytime I'm analyzing something for a client is I have to figure out what information is good and what information is bad because there's just a lot of bad information out there. Right. But I think the other point that you're you're raising here, um, and, and this might sort of resonate with some of the listeners because a lot of our listeners are more, you know, they're geopolitics nerds, politics nerds. I'm sure there are some investing nerds among them. Uh, but I think, in, in people's imagination of how markets work, they think that it's somehow rational that there's, as you said, that there's a valuation and that you pay the proper price and maybe you pay a little bit more, maybe you pay a little bit less. And to me, the thing that the GameStop phenomenon showed um, was that this was all about momentum. It was all about emotion. Those those folks who were who were buying GameStop at 480, I don't know anybody who bought GameStop at 480, and I feel bad for anybody who was. But let's say you were somebody who you know you were on Twitter and you saw this thing they're going to take it to the moon, and you bought you know a couple shares of GameStop at 120. You're stuck inside because of the pandemic. You have nothing to do with your life, 
and it's just it's going up it's hitting 140 180 you know on your screen yep. you're watching yourself make money and you want to buy more and then suddenly the app locks you out and then suddenly like all these guys are going on twitter the guys who you know <clears throat> encourage you to buy it in the first place they're telling you that you're being had they're telling you that it's a, it's all a rigged game yep. and in this part i think robin hood really they made a real marketing mistake because yes. When they when they announced it, you could still sell the stock. You just couldn't buy it, and they were really kind of flippy floppy about how they communicated it. And besides, I don't even if they had communicated it well, you know, all that information was out there, um, moving people towards momentum. But I just want to get back to something you said about valuation. You quoted Warren Buffett, and for some reason, I was thinking about Bill Parcells. You know, somebody asked him once about um, how good his football team was, and he said, "Ah, the football team is it's it's your record. Right. How good you are with your wins and losses. It doesn't matter." If you won 14 games on the last minute on fluke plays, that means that you're a 14 game you know winner that season. It's the same sort of thing with GameStop. For for a for a hot moment there, GameStop was a $480 stock because yep. that's what the demand of it was, and uh, it's mind blowing. It is, and I completely agree with that too, right? And you know, one thing that I tell people when it comes to valuation and analysis uh, and just investing in the market is you can do all the homework, you know, and you could, your analysis could be spot on, but if the market doesn't agree with you, you're wrong. Joel Greenblatt tells his students this at Columbia. It's, you know, you can, like I just said, you can have all this great analysis and work done, but if in your investment horizon, if it's 12, 15, 18 months, whatever it may be three years, if the market doesn't ever agree with you and the price doesn't move to where you believe it should move to, you're wrong. It's it's that simple. So I do agree. Like, you know, GameStop was worth at one point in time 480 because of the supply and demand. But and, and this is, I think, uh this will be an interesting, I think, way to talk about it for your audience, right? Because I'm I'm very used to only investors and I do want to say hi to my fellow investor nerds out there. But the way to think about the market can be a complex adaptive system, right? So I, I don't know if you're familiar with that term, and I can just quickly explain it if it's easier. Yeah, please define it. Let's do it. So uh, this is a – it's something I learned about through from Michael Mobison, who is just one of the best um, you know, directors of research, however you want to put it out there, uh, in my opinion. So a complex adaptive system has three – basic components or characteristics. One is, is that it consists of uh, many heterogeneous agents, right? And each of them make their own decisions about how to behave. And then the most important thing to understand about that is that those decisions change over time, right? It's not a static uh, environment, it's dynamic, right? That is something we definitely have in the markets. People are making their own decisions all the time and that changes daily, monthly, Etc. Etc. The second uh, characteristic is that the agents interact with one another. We have in the market buyers and sellers. We're interacting with each other all the time, and that interaction then leads to a third and final component, which is what uh, scientists call emergence. Which basically is, if you think about it this way, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. So this, the issue then with complex adaptive systems is that you can't really understand the whole system just by looking at its individual parts. So for the market, you can't just understand what's happening in the market by looking at the underlying stocks or industries. 
it's not it's not going to tell you anything substantial. And so what the market really is, and I think that uh, at least in the short term, once again, I, I do believe in the long term, there is validity to the efficient market hypothesis, which is essentially that, you know, stocks will revert to their intrinsic value over time. Uh, but I do believe in the short term, it, it is much more of a voting machine, right? And and uh, John Maynard, Maynard Keynes, uh, he really put the, he wrote about the best analogy that I could think about uh, when it comes to the market uh, in his uh, in his book, The General Theory. And it was basically this, right? It's uh, the metaphor is that you have this, uh, this competition, right, through a, through a newspaper. And what you have to do in order to win is you have to pick out the six prettiest faces from, let's call it 100 pictures, right? And then the, the winner is the person who can most nearly correspond to the average preference of all of the competitors. So what does that mean? You're not trying to pick the prettiest face that you think is the prettiest face. You're trying to pick what you think on average the prettiest face people think the prettiest faces are. So if you kind of keep going and extrapolating that, well, if you're trying to figure out what the average person thinks are the prettiest faces, you would then think, well, those people are also trying to do the same thing. So what is the average of the average prettiest face? And you keep going down, um, you know, this, these second, third, fourth, fifth orders, right? So you've reached these degrees of intelligence where you're just anticipating what the average opinion expects the average opinion, which expects the average opinion to think. And that's what you have in markets in the short term. It's, it's becoming this game of, well, what do I think others are going to want, you know, buy and what are others going to want to sell? And you go through this, this process of just mental anguish, trying to figure it out. So that brings me to a really important point, I think, and that is, is that time horizons, your investment time horizon can be your biggest advantage, right? Over the long term, there are a couple of dynamics that play in the market. One is, is that on average, the stock's going to go up between eight and 10% a year, right? And now, you know, the market one is not an ergodic process, right? You know, it is past dependent and it's a lot easier said than done to say, well, you know, on average, we're going up eight or 10% and the market's down 30% and you have to hold. It's, it's a, it's a lot more difficult when you factor in psychology, right? So uh, over time, the stock is going to go up eight or 10%. And if you can just hold and put stocks away and not think about it, you'll realize that compounding effect over time. But if you are much more short-term influenced, right, then you're going to be susceptible to this, uh, to this type of game, right? The prettiest face game. Uh, and so that's why I think that, you know, really depending on what you're trying to do, uh, having a longer term perspective really helps. And the last kind of comment that I'll put there is that if you think about it mathematically, right, there are really two ways that a company can increase in value. One is the growth of the underlying fundamentals, uh, you know, earnings, cash flow, etc. Or the multiple or the way that the market values your stock, right? And over time, the longer you go, actually, the larger proportion that the compounding of the fundamental growth will matter more than whatever the price multiple was that you bought and sold for. 
So having this longer term perspective and buying, you know, great companies with durable competitive advantages that have pricing power and great management teams that you trust can compound your capital over time. That's really the trick. And over a long period of time, you'll do fine. Yeah. Well, I, I want to push back a little bit on something you said earlier, actually, which was that, you know, you felt like not much had changed and that things were kind of going to go back to the way they were. But I, I think the analogy to, to votes is interesting because I think one of the things that has changed, um, is that folks are getting their information from different places. This Wall Street bets phenomenon happened on Reddit. Yep. So it used to be that we were all consume, and this meant, you know, for society in general, we were all consuming the same information. Um, you know, even, you know, in, in, our, in our parents' lifetimes, there were three TV channels. There was a local newspaper and there were a couple national papers. Everybody was consuming the same information. And when you look at what's happened politically in the United States in the last you know, five, 10, maybe even a, beyond that years, um, folks are starting to source their information from places that tell them what they want, not what is actually going on. Right. When I say that that's Fox News, that's CNN, that's MSNBC. It's all of them. I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush there intentionally because they all do it. It's all about what do I want to hear, not what is actually going on in the world. Now, I think that because not a lot of people invest in the stock market, I, f I forget what the number is, but is it like half of Americans don't actually invest in the market right now, or at least right. didn't before this whole GameStop phenomenon? It's a smaller, more rarefied community. And so you could you know, pick up the Wall Street Journal or read Bloomberg, and there was still some kind of coherence to the information and the perspective that everybody was consuming. Wasn't a particularly good perspective, in my opinion. It seems to me every time something happens in the markets, the Wall Street Journal, they just find whatever's going on in the world. And they say, oh, uh, markets are down today because Xi Jinping gave a speech. Like literally, if, if you read the front page of the Wall Street Journal, it's maddening because it yep. doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Right. I was thinking about this just yesterday because, um, you know, Peloton had a had an earnings beat. The stock was down like ten percent after yep. hours. Why is it down? They did well. Oh, it's because supply chain. They just make up a bunch of stuff. But at least everybody was reading the same made up stuff. Right. The thing that the, the thing that worries me, and I don't know if it worries me. Maybe that's the wrong word. But these Wall Street bets folks, they were getting their information from somewhere else. You know, they were looking to Dave Portnoy. They were looking to to their friends that they met on Reddit. Um, to consume the information. You could even go, I, I went down a rabbit hole and read it, and these folks were publishing their own deep dives, trying to make cases about why you should buy Nokia, why you should buy BlackBerry, all these stocks, which actually have some interesting theses behind them. But it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just that there was this emotional panic thing. What, what underlaid it was the system of conveying information and group perspective that really formed into a mini mob. And you mentioned Citron, the reason Citron doesn't want to short stocks anymore is because the mob was threatening their lives, was trying yeah. to hack them, was trying to find their homes, you know, all this other kind of crazy stuff that was going on. So I think when we're thinking in general about what happened in markets last week, I think maybe it had its 2016 moment. Folks realized that information really does matter. And if you get a critical mass of enough humans consuming information, whether it's right or wrong, it can start moving markets. And then the needle starts moving all over the place as the folks who, who thought they were on the inside start having to react to this variable that they didn't see before. So if we're moving to a place where investment ideas and reporting on these things, um, everybody has their own source and more people are doing it because they want to be on the next GameStop. Like my sister isn't interested in the stock market at all. She called me out of the blue a week ago saying, what's GameStop? Should I buy some GameStop? <laughs> 
and like that's happened like a number of people in my life have called, oh yeah i'm a, I'm a geopolitics guy not an investing guy so whatever but i'm just saying that there's a kernel of something there and i think in that sense the finance community is now experiencing what we've experienced in politics and society and a lot of other places and i think that's why some of those crotchety old men who made billions of dollars went on cnbc and went on you know all these other channels and you know they they did the get off my lawn speech because <laughs> the old system worked just fine for them. They don't right. want to see the old system blown up. So, right. I don't know. No. So I actually really agree with your take. Um. And and so it also goes back to a lot of different things actually. So one is diversity of thought. You know, does improve outcomes. And I think that you are right. You know, the broader availability of information, as long as it's being consumed, right? I think that that does actually add to market efficiency. And when what I did mean before in terms of things aren't going to change, it's simply that institutions will dominate the, the price action. But in terms of what is going to change, you know, there are, I think, a lot of good things that are going to come out of this. Now, let me preface what I'm going to say by also saying that short selling improves market efficiency. So, and for instance, right, uh, back in 08, they actually, uh, the I think it was the SEC or one of the regulators restricted short selling. And that just made matters even worse because there was then no covering of the short selling. So there was there were no buyers, right? So short selling does serve a very important purpose when it comes to price discovery. However, what I think a huge benefit of the situation is, is that you're not going to be seeing irresponsible shorts like we saw uh, with GameStop. Now, I don't even know how it's possible that a stock can be shorted more than 100% of its float. It must have something to do with uh, transferring of options and offloading more risk. I don't know. Uh, but I think you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot more instances now of if there is short interest, it's going to be a lot more manageable so that you can't get squeezed. Now, I, and so I've talked to a lot of, you know, my contacts on the buy side, hedge funds are scared out of their minds. They are getting out of their short positions. Some aren't even considering shorting for a long time. I, I so, bet they're also all getting Reddit accounts and following what's going on on Reddit. <laughs> well, that's another thing too is, you know, how how could anyone know on Reddit or Wall Street Bets if, you know, these people were truly, you know, like your average college kid or someone that works at one of these funds is, and is trying to drive price action? Like you don't know. Um, so I think that there is a lot of interesting things that come out of this event. Uh, and to, to bring it back, you know, kind of full circle, you know, I want to make sure it's applicable, uh, an applicable discussion for your audience. You know, what I do think we're going to see is a lot more volatility in markets, at least in the shorter term, uh, when it comes to, especially these smaller cap names. So, uh, I'll try to bring a more, you know, macro lens to this discussion now, which is, you know, we saw this instance happen with GameStop, but I think it was either earlier this week or was it Monday or Friday, you know, they were trying to do the same thing with silver. They were trying to put on a short squeeze with silver, which was, which didn't even work. And it's actually an, an interesting uh, story because I'm not sure if you're familiar with how the Hunt brothers tried to corner of the market in silver back in god the 60s or 70s whenever it was mm -mm. the issue then was that they were successful with it until the government stepped in 
and they raised capital requirements and they could no longer fund the short. And a very similar thing happened where uh, I forget how exactly this uh, the trade popped, but you know these people were trying to get sh- or trying to squeeze silver, uh, you know, on the short side, and I think it was the the brokerages themselves increased margin requirements so that it w- it couldn't occur anymore, and silver came right back down. Right, so it's not just, and the issue is this: it's not just in stocks that you could see the short squeezes, these instances play out, but it's also with commodities. And now the issue with commodities is a lot more important than any, you know, individual stock that may be squeezed because you have companies around the world and supply chains really reliant on these commodity prices and how exactly the, you know, spot prices and then future prices uh, are behaving right because you have to make these decisions. So, uh, as an example, right, I was doing a pretty in-depth dive on uh, this company called uh, GraphTech, which is uh, it's ticker EAF, and they're a producer of graphite electrodes. So, graphite electrodes uh, require a really like an oil byproduct called uh, needle coke. And it's called petroleum needle coke because it's a byproduct of uh, petroleum. And that is priced really based off of only one company that produces it, which is Phillips 66. But the impact for uh, and the way to analyze EAF itself was really trying to understand what's happening in the steel market. Because what graphite electrodes are mostly used for is the production of steel from what's called electric arc furnaces. And so that is really the main driver, right, of of the demand for EAF is how steel, is, what the demand for steel is. Now, the demand for steel, you can really intuit from steel prices. So steel prices uh, are right now at all-time highs. And so that would indicate then, you know, high demand. So these, you know, producers downstream in the supply chain are going to be making decisions off of what they're seeing in certain markets, right? And so will the steel producers with higher prices, they're going to be wanting to cranking out steel as much as possible. So if you have manipulation or, or just certain price action in the market, that doesn't truly reflect a normalized or when I say normalized, you know, within the business cycle. Uh, what supply and demand is, that can just cause a really a lot of disruption throughout the entire supply chain. And that would then increase the sensitivity of business cycles and economic cycles, which would then contribute to a more boom and bust and more frequent boom and bust type nature of the economy. So I think that, you know, when it, if it's limited to just equities, it's probably not going to have as big of an impact. As if, you know, they started going after certain commodities like they did with silver or if they do with steel or copper, which, you know, copper to me is the biggest indicator of, uh, you know, forward equity prices. Um, So I think that there are a lot of interesting permutations and combinations of of events off of this uh, that, you know, I think I would just caution people to uh, take note of and be aware of because if it does permeate into these much more tangible markets, it could have big impacts. Yeah. And and now you're traipsing on areas where I do a lot of work too. But I think there was something in what you said about um, you know, there is a structural advantage for institutional investors. And at the kernel of any kind of um, 
group think that happens, there is usually some kind of truth. And I think that's the truth that, that was at the core of the Wall Street bets mob and phenomenon. They see the structural advantage that the institutions are getting. They see that individuals have less options when it comes to the marketplace, and that pissed them off. Right. And that yep. that narrative is true. Like institutions, large corporations, this game is is easier the bigger that you are because yes. you can you can have that long time horizon that you alluded to and just hold in times where things are bad, whereas you know somebody else has to pay the rent. Right. Um, it's 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 much more of a thing. But to your point about commodities, I mean, commodity speculation has been going on probably as long as human beings have been alive. And it's it's more, you know, I, I do some investment advising with folks, but equities, as you sort of point out, are second order things. Yep. Um, I can describe a lot of the inputs, I can describe a lot of the risks, but there's also this emotion, momentum, all these components that have nothing to do with the fundamentals. And my job as a geopolitical analyst is really give you the fundamentals. So you know, I help folks figure out um, investment strategies with equities, but I always tell them, I'm giving you the fundamentals. You, you're the investment person, which means you also have to have the psychology of the market and the valuation conversation. Like that's, I'm just going to give you the best fundamentals that you can possibly have. Right. And in com commodities though, um, I'm a little closer to the source because it's a physical thing. It has to go from point A to point B. And you talked about steel, copper, all these other commodities. Um, that's where China becomes such a big deal mm -hmm. because the price of things like steel, like coal, um, like copper, it really is defined by Chinese demand, by Chinese production. Yep. And what's happening in China has affected these markets all over the world. Um, and you know, you talked about steel prices being high. Just the fact that China was overproducing steel so that they could build ghost cities that nobody was going to live in to keep their economy going, and then dumping the excess steel in the marketplace is the reason all the steel workers wanted to vote for Donald Trump, because yep. the price of steel got sent down because of this market condition in China, which you know, the fundamentals weren't supporting. It was a political um, imperative for the Chinese government to do that, and it reverberated throughout markets. So this is where you know, geopolitics and national imperatives and all these sorts of things start to play in. And I, I agree with you that um, you know, we like to think of efficient markets, and, and over the long haul, maybe that efficiency is going to come in there. But you do have these moments where different political actors, whether they're companies, whether they're governments, whether they're both at the same time, are affecting market prices um, and all those things. There's always politics behind them, um, and I think for the Wall Street Bets crew, um, you know, they pulled back the curtain and saw some politics they didn't like. They saw some structural things they didn't like. But if you know, if you actually delve into the plumbing, as you said, there are a lot more of these other, you know, bubbles, uh, structural flaw. All these things are, are sort of lurking all behind there. I don't mean that as some sort of doom and gloom thing. Um, the system works for a reason. Um, but you know, those, those potholes are there, and that's why you get these kind of up and down, boom bust cycles, as you said. Yep. And the last thing I would just say is. You know, we're moving away from a globalized economy to a more regional based one based on national powers and self-reliance rather than on you know, efficient and lean supply chains. And I do think that means that different great powers are going to be competing for, um, for access to different commodities um, that is only for their benefit. Um, so I think you could see these boom and bust cycles happening in places in Latin America with lithium or places in Africa when it comes to cobalt, all of these minerals that are supposed to be a part of the, of the, the next uh, big economic revolution. Um, but you know, that they aren't actually in our countries and the globalization network is breaking down. But I think that's a great segue to talking a little bit um, about artificial intelligence. Um, I want to be 
we're, we're 42 minutes in. I could talk to you all day, Chris, but I, I want to do a little bit of time on artificial intelligence before we wrap up here because I thought your primers on artificial intelligence were great. I do have a bone to pick, though, um, because and, and this is why it's a good segue. Uh, you didn't mention geopolitics once in your artificial <laughs> intelligence primer, and you didn't mention China once in your artificial <laughs> intelligence primer. And I don't think you can talk about artificial intelligence without talking about geopolitics anymore. Um, but how about you give a little very, very brief, give us sort of, you know, the the one paragraph takeaway from your artificial intelligence primer, and then tell me why or why not you didn't include that geopolitical element. Yeah, so <laughs> your bone is is just a perfect bone to pick with me because, um, I one, I completely agree with you. Uh, two <laughs> is... You know, it's funny because when I when I released the first part of uh, this primer, right, I have four parts so far, I, I made it very clear to people, like, I have no background in computer science, I have no background in artificial intelligence. This is my attempt to, you know, open kimono, show people how I go about learning about a specific theme or technology or industry, whatever it may be. So I do not know everything about AI. But I, I do know a little bit, and I think I'm a little bit more knowledgeable than your average, uh, you know, your average consumer of products, your average investor. Uh, one thing that I, I haven't gotten to the China side of it, uh, or even really the geopolitical side of it, is because I want to tie the AI piece in with my next primer series, which is all about semiconductors, hmm. which we can definitely include in this conversation. I was going to excuse me, bring it up when you were talking about the more localization of supply chains mm -hmm. and how that ties in with what's happening in the semiconductor market, which to me is the most important industry in the world. But so to start, uh, I didn't mention China in the AI pieces because uh, I'm going to loop them in. But two is it's very much more of a basic like, this is what artificial intelligence is. In terms of the takeaways themselves, the only piece I've done so far is how to analyze a company through an AI lens. So let me start with just the, the key takeaway of AI and what I was trying to get at and why, why I think it was so important for me to do at least part four, which is the, you know, the final part, like I mentioned, which is that it seems now that artificial intelligence is the next buzzword. Uh, you know, like we had dot com back in the 2000s, uh, and you've had other type of buzzwords to indicate value for companies uh, that have led to bubbles, et cetera, uh, throughout market history. And I'm seeing a lot of similar dynamics now with artificial intelligence. So the key takeaway was. You need to truly understand really three main things when it comes to a company and their claim of usage of artificial intelligence. That is, uh, the three broad categories are one, what problem are they solving? Two, data. And there are some uh, subcategories of data. And then three, it's the quality or the proprietary nature of the algorithm itself. So right now, the most important thing uh, when it comes to understanding artificial artificial intelligence and the quality thereon of the programs or machines being built for AI is the quantity of data and really the quality of data. So 
when it comes to a company like Lemonade uh, claiming they use AI when the entire industry does it and they're a newer company, well, the, they can't have as much of a quantity of data as their competitors. So there are issues there. So taking just one big quick step back to finalize my uh, really three paragraphs instead of one, you know, you can think about AI as I would say three different categories. So AI is the overarching umbrella within uh, that umbrella. There's machine learning and within machine learning, there is deep learning. So I had to, I wanted to come up with a term for anything that was artificial intelligence, but was not considered machine learning. So AI as a whole is just simply when, you know, we're able to give a machine human-like intelligence so that the machine can, you know, predict, they can classify, learn, play, reason, etc. That's artificial intelligence as a whole. Machine learning is the subset of AI that utilizes math, statistics, etc. to learn from the data itself. And the really main uh, and the more popular now segment of machine learning is deep learning, which is utilizing neural networks, which is essentially programs uh, modeled after the human brain, uh, modeled after the neurons in the human brain. And it has multiple layers uh, within this network that does a lot of different calculations. Uh, really, it's a black box, but it's used now to... Uh, as an example for natural language processing, uh, it's used for image recognition, uh, audio and video classifications. So the advancements in, uh, in artificial intelligence have really been coming from deep learning. And the term that I apply to anything that's not machine learning or deep learning is what I just call basic artificial intelligence. And basic artificial intelligence is that the program is just solving a, uh, solving a problem. And that's, it's that simple, right? And so where you see AI in a lot of companies are just basically solving a very basic problem, right? It's, it's improving efficiency. But what it doesn't do, which is what uh, a lot of people were claiming in their analyses that I was seeing, is that the use of artificial intelligence was creating some durable, sustainable, competitive advantage when it was not. And so that was really the the message I wanted to get across is you need to do the work to really understand how a company is utilizing artificial intelligence, the quantity of data, the quality of data, the algorithm that they're using, and the problem they're solving to really understand the value AI can apply to a company. Yeah. And I, I love that you were upfront about the fact that you're not an AI expert, that you had no background in this before you dived into it. And I'm sure there are people out there who will hear that and be like, who are these two dudes who are talking about AI? They don't know shit about AI. And I just want to respond to those people because I'm sure there's a couple of them out there and just say that, look, like Chris is doing this from an investment point of view and I'm doing it from a geopolitics point of view. And knowledge is not sovereign. Like knowledge is for everyone. So just because we are not artificial intelligence experts does not mean we can't figure out enough about artificial intelligence to figure out how it's going to affect those things that we actually are experts in. And I would invite anybody who is an artificial intelligence expert who wants to go deeper in this, please come on the show, drop us a line, info at perchperspectives.com. I'll do the same interview with you that I did with Chris, and you can drop some knowledge on all of us, and I'll be happy to soak it up like a sponge. So I'll get off my soapbox there and just say a couple of things, which is um, you know, Peter Thiel, I don't know if I agree with this or not. I've, I've sort of, um, 
I've badmouthed this comment from him a little bit on this podcast before, but I think about 10 years ago now, he, he described cryptocurrencies um, and blockchain in general as a libertarian sort of technological innovation and mm. artificial intelligence as a communist technological innovation. Now, I have a lot of problems with that construction, um, but I think part of the reason I have problems with it because there is a, a pretty unique kernel of insight in there, which is that you know, AI, if you get to that general AI that you're talking about, like the full realization of AI, right. not AGI, just AI, right? Yep. Yeah. Not just, not just talking to Siri and asking her, you know, yeah. <laughs> what, what she thinks about what you had for breakfast. Um, but, you know, ac actual sort of things, um, AI, and this gets back to our conversation about information, um, AI would then start to make decisions. It would make decisions maybe in markets, uh, maybe on battlefields maybe in terms of you know identifying cyber threats and neutralizing them before the humans even knew that the cyber threat was there sort of thing. It starts to create um, reality. And as we've seen with the GameStop thing, once you create a reality, whether it's true or not, or based on fundamentals or not, human beings will go at it. And I think there is this fear there underlying that AI will do that. Whereas you know crypto and, and blockchain, all these other things, it's about decentralized control. Again, right. I, I don't know if that's true, and I'd love to get your take on that, but I just throw that out there because I think it's an interesting um, point of view to wrestle with. It um, is. The second thing I want to say is that um, you, you talked about, and I thought this was a great way to frame it, you talked about what AI is being used for. And I think anytime you're thinking about technological advances, you do have to think about what that thing is used for. My two favorite examples of this are um, in the United States in the 19th century, somebody in, uh, invents the, the six shooter. So the handgun, you can have six shots rather than just, you know, one shot on your rifle and you have to reload it sort of thing. And some guy comes up with the six shooter. I, I can't, I think it was Samuel Colt. I think that was who it was probably because it's the Colt 45 or whatever. You know, he comes up with this six shooter and the U S army doesn't want it. <laughs> They're happy with their <laughs> rifles, but who does want it are these Texas Rangers who are dealing with the Comanche on the plains. Um, because the Comanche are these cavalry archers, and they can fire more arrows uh, per minute than they can reload their rifles at. And the six-shooter becomes this technological innovation because the Texas Rangers go and buy them all. Because if the Texas Rangers hadn't been there, probably you have to wait decades, if not longer, for the six-shooter to actually get adopted. Right. Another example of this goes back to the semiconductor thing. Um, you know, Microchips, the chips behind all the technology that we're using today, uh, were invented... Um, it depends who you ask. A lot of different people, you know, lay claim to it. I know Jack Kilby at Texas Instruments is obviously one of the most important guys. Um, but this was all happening sort of post 1945, you know, yep. late 1940s, early 1950s. And they have microchips like, the, you know, the concept is there. They're building them all these other things. Microchips don't take off until the U.S. government under the Kennedy administration decides that they want to use microchips to create precision guided munitions so that their missiles can strike specific targets in the Soviet Union. Yep. And once the United States decides it wants to buy all of those microchips, suddenly you have an industry and suddenly all these, you know, second order, third order developments in our phones, all these things happen in large part because the U.S. government, for a distinctly geopolitical reason, decides to be the first investor sort of thing. Right. So that's why I think you can't disconnect AI from the geopolitics conversation at all, because it's that kind of competition thing. It's that kind of technology. China says it wants to be a global AI power by 2030. Russia yep. says, I, I forget uh, I forget the exact quote, but Putin was quoted just recently saying, whoever controls AI is going to control the world yeah. sort of thing. And I, I think it is because there is this competition over the technology that multiple governments are not able to extricate it and they are thinking about how to apply it. So if you are a company in that space or if you're using artificial intelligence, the government's going to be involved. They're going to be watching. They're going to be using it for their own purposes. 
and I just want to close on that by saying um, you know, one of the best lines I thought in your primer was you talked about how um, maybe counterintuitively a company that has a data advantage is going to be better off than a company with an algorithm advantage. Yep. And, ta and talking about how data is really the raw material that the AI has to work with. And as AI gets better, in some sense, an AI is only as good as the data that it is getting fed to. Um, and if you're thinking about the United States and the future of the US tech industry, uh, I think that should worry you um, because just look at the way the COVID-19 vaccine has rolled out because we have really shitty data. Um, it's because we can't track human beings in our country for a lot of different reasons and we can't figure out what goes where. We've got doses being wasted, this, that, and the other thing. That's a data problem. It's a data problem in terms of gathering, in terms of organizing, collecting, all these other things. And the reason China might have a leg up here is because they're good at that. Right. They have figured out that this is a strategic priority and they'll gather the data no matter what. So we're going to have this interesting moment, I think, in the United States where are we going to sort of fall down on the side of national security? Is the government going to play that role again where it steps in because it recognizes that to preserve the greater good, it's going to have to do some things that maybe feel a little bit um, anti-liberal, anti-democratic in practice in order to protect the overall ecosystem from somebody who wants to use those things from harm? I don't know. I'm just, I'm raising the questions that are at the core of this. And that's why anything that is linked to artificial intelligence, whether it's the data, the semiconductors, um, even, you know, the, the, the not very complicated or sophisticated parts that go into creating the data centers and all these other things, they're all going to be at the center of global competition. They are all going to have the eyes of national governments on them in a very intense way. Yeah, no. And Jacob, I'm, I'm sorry. Cause I could, you know, rant and talk to you all day about all of these <laughs> topics. Uh, cause I just find it so extremely fascinating and it ties into, uh, you know, really a lot of other interests, non really investment related that I have, you know, for instance, recently, I've been diving into quantum mechanics, right? And so mm -hmm. as another, <laughs> as another uh, precursor to that, I have no background in quantum mechanics either, but I'm trying to understand the basics, right? But my point is, is that what that informs is it allows you to understand uh, really the nature of, of the heart of the matter. Uh, to your point, you know, what is happening from a geopolitical perspective? And, you know, for me, the reason why the AI is so applicable uh, across borders is once again, really focused on the semiconductor side, you know, because the reason why AI was able to take off uh, really came back to uh, what happened in, I think it was 2012 or 2013, you know, we, the whoever it was realized, wow, you know, if we put GPUs next to CPUs, which GPUs are, are really good at doing the same thing over and over again, like doing a calculation over and over again. If we put GPUs next to CPUs, we can run some pretty heavy models. So now what the most important, that was really the big, the big uh, event that occurred that got us out of this AI winter where, you know, even though we had a lot of data from the internet and social media, we didn't have the computer processing power that would allow us to, you know, for now GPT-3, which is, uh, which is a $175 billion, uh, billion uh, parameter program, you know, we didn't have the processing power before. So one of the biggest drivers uh, of semiconductors today is really these advancements in AI, but AI is also reliant on the semiconductors to be able to progress as well. And so that's why, you know, if we want to really talk about, I think, a unique 
geopolitical topic, it's it really centers around Taiwan Semiconductor. And, and we can tie it into the U.S. too uh, when it comes to Intel, right? So in 2019, Intel lost its fabrication lead to Taiwan Semiconductor because they fell behind a node. Uh, and I can just quickly say, so a node is just really uh, the next level in compute processing power. So if you think about Moore's law, it's the next essentially doubling of the number of transistors uh, on a chip. And so the way that you can think about it is that now that Taiwan Semi is really the leading manufacturer, you know, they have greater than 50% market share of, uh, of the actual core manufacturing capabilities, that's going to be an incredibly strategic company and the island is going to be strategically even more competitive now between the U.S. and China, I think. You know, you're the expert, not me. But I could see that playing out. And so it's really interesting that you see now that uh, Taiwan Semi has plans to build a five nanometer factory, which is the currently the, the top uh, technology in semiconductors. They're going to spend $12 billion over the next couple of years to build this in Arizona. Right. And now Samsung is going to be doing a very similar thing uh, in Texas. And Samsung's one of the other uh, big uh, fabrications or foundries. So I, I do see that, you know, the geopolitical lens behind artificial intelligence and tying in semiconductors, I could see it really becoming really front and center. And I think whoever really, I think, you know, whatever the U.S. does in terms of <laughs> really stoking that fire. It'll be interesting to see it play out, and I would love to just get your thoughts on how you could see that playing out. Yeah, so it's a good question. I would listeners, if you haven't gone back and listened to our podcast with Ray Ma uh, from Tech Buzz China, we talk specifically about this uh, about this issue there. Um, obviously, I, I deal with more of the political aspect. Ray is actually focused on the technology aspects, um, and she's a great follow at Tech Buzz China. And I thought that podcast was a really good primer for what we're talking about. Also, just a shameless pitch here. I mean. Chris and I are having a good time talking, but this is the exact sort of conversation um, where I think geopolitical consulting actually really shines and creates competitive advantage. I think there are too many consultants out there who think they're going to come in and just sort of wave a magic wand and they're going to tell you exactly what to do. And the way that actual good consulting works is if you get a client who is an expert at what they do and then recognizes that you are the expert in geopolitics or, or whatever it is, and then fuses that with their own expertise to create better outcomes. That's really what I'm all about. And in, in a sense, it's why I have these conversations on the podcast. It's to keep myself sharp. It's to keep myself having those conversations and give people a picture of the kind of depth you can get, even if you walk into the conversation not knowing a whole lot. On semiconductors, um, look, it's it's not just uh, Taiwan, although, I mean, Taiwan is a big one. You mentioned the, the you know, TSM talking about building um, that fab or whatever in Arizona, I'll believe it when I see it. And they're right. also not going to complete it till 2023, at which point is five nanometers really going to be the most cutting edge thing. I think that was pretty clearly, um, they were trying to make nice with the Trump administration. Yeah. You've got a new administration in the U S right now. Uh, you mentioned Intel, Intel's fallen behind, but Intel from a geopolitical strategy point of view, they are the company that had it right. The geopolitical strategy was a thousand percent right. They were right. producing here in the United States still. They fell down on execution. Right. Um, yep. And if they can get their execution back online, or if the U.S. government decides that it is in the U.S. national interest for Intel to get its um, systems back together, which I think is, I, I can't, I can't say that for sure, but that would, that's what I would bet on. 
I think that's the bullish case for Intel, that the right. U.S. is going to see Intel as a national champion and it's going to treat it as such. On the flip side of this, you've got China, which because of the Trump administration really had its semiconductor supply chains break down because they still are not self-reliant on a lot of the technology that goes into creating the most advanced microchips. Um, they are sprinting to self-reliance. Um, so the sooner that they can start producing these things themselves from their point of view, the better. And that will also make Taiwan a little bit less important for them because once yeah. China decides it's going to get self-reliant <clears throat> on something, maybe it'll take five years, maybe it'll take 15 years, 20 years. We can argue about how long it's going to take, um, but that's also going to change all the, the all the dynamics. Um, and I just one other point I would throw in there. We, we think about the US, China, Taiwan because they're the biggest players, but I'm glad you mentioned Samsung because obviously they're a big player. And South Korea is a big player, but it's yeah. not just them, it's Japan too. And this right. goes back to the point about globalization. We we used to have globalized supply chains, um, which was more, it was more like a green light system where things went unless you know somebody came in and said, stop. We're moving to more of a red light system or a yellow light system where you have to show your credentials or show your political affiliation before you're going to be allowed to get through. A couple of years ago, uh, I guess now, uh, what, a year and a half ago, two years ago, I've lost all sense of time during the <laughs> pandemic. J Japan, you know, launched a bunch of um, export restrictions and import restrictions on South Korea because of a political fight they've been having for over a century. And wow. that completely broke down the supply chain that, you know, South Korea needed to import etching and all these other things that they needed to continue producing the things that then China and the US needed to import to produce their things. You know, it completely shut that down for a while. So my, my point there is just that it's more about it's 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 about more than just the U.S. and China, although and Taiwan, although they are big components of it. But you're seeing these different areas where folks are trying to create self-reliance or trying to create politically reliable supply chains so that they can have um, the equipment that we're talking about to produce these technological advantages. It's one of the reasons I keep saying over and over at Perch Perspectives, if you look on the website, there's going to be a geopolitical revolution before we get to the next economic revolution. Um, it's happened every single time. When you think about the industrial revolution, when you think about the digital revolution, there was always an intense geopolitical conflict before the promise of the technology could actually be realized. Because before the technology could be realized, everybody was fighting over it. That's the period we're in right now. Everybody's going to be fighting to be that next tech champion. And before you're going to get um, you know, a lot of this potential coming to fruition, there's going to be a lot of geopolitical stuff happening in the interim. So. That, that's sort of my take on that. That That's great. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to add one thing. I don't know how much time you have. I don't want to take too much of it. One, just one thing when it comes to semiconductors, mm -hmm. and it relates to your point that China is trying to bring everything in-house, and, and that's my same understanding as well. You know, there's one really big issue there, and, and that is simply from a technology side, in order to make substantial progress and get to, you know, the, the best technology out there right now, it's five nanometer in process, they're going to three nanometer. So to your point, you know, with uh, TSM building the five nanometer factory in, uh, in Phoenix, I believe it's Phoenix. So in Arizona, um, by that time, you're right, they're going to have three nanometer up and running. So it's not going to be, you know, the cutting edge. But my point being that there's only one company in the entire world that can uh, that has the uh, technical acumen and the ability to create the machines needed to get us down uh, past 10 nanometer, actually, which is ASML. 
Yep. So uh, really quickly for the listeners, ASML is a photolithography company. And what that does is, is they use light to essentially etch uh, the, the system design onto a chip. Uh, and it's, it's really remarkable. I'll, I'll try to be very quick in explaining what they do. But to me, I find it, one, fascinating. Two, I think they are the coolest and most important company in the world. So uh, up until 10, 10 nanometers, ASML could use uh, ultraviolet light to uh, etch these carvings onto the uh, silicone wafers. And the really fascinating part there is that ultraviolet light is 193 nanometers wide. Uh, but they were able to, uh, just through different methodologies, uh, narrow that down to 10 nanometers. But past 10 nanometers, they couldn't do it anymore. Uh, you know, they had used uh, many different fabrication technologies, but they couldn't get past 10. So uh, Nokia, and which was the other really big competitor, I think there was another one out there. Uh, they were all working, including ASML, on developing uh, extreme ultraviolet light or EUV lithography. Nokia gave up. It was too difficult for them to do. They couldn't figure it out. So no matter how much money you wanted to throw at the problem, it came down to an engineering problem. And ASML was the only company that could figure it out. So they have like a 95% or it's 100% market share of EUV uh, technology and machines, which is remarkable. So what the EUV technology does is, you know, it drops 50,000 uh, minuscule particles of molten tin uh, down into a funnel. And with a, a carbon dioxide laser, it shoots this molten tin 50,000 times a second to create plasma, which from the plasma uh, is emitted EUV light, which then goes down to the chip. And that's how you can carve uh, carve out or etch. Uh, the transistor size is less than 10 na nanometers. So the point being is that while China, I think, will be able to get there, uh, and you know they have their own fabs uh, inside the country, there is going to be this underlying issue of they can't get their hands on extreme ultraviolet light machines, so I don't know how they're going to be able to then get get past 10 nanometers. Now, that could yeah, change, but that's yeah. that's the big issue I see. Yeah, it's a great point. So, I mean, China has a lot of, um, they've done a lot of amazing things. They also have some key deficiencies, um, EUV equipment. And that was an amazing description, the molten tin thing. I mean, EUV it's wild. is wild. It's wild. But the, I guess the cliff notes is, you know, it, EUV is what makes the chips and the chips are important, but it, it's funny. Like that's the thing that actually makes the chips and then the chips, all that other second order stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, EUV equipment and then um, actually design software, China's really behind too. And really? I spent a lot of time reading tech journals and um, you, like the Chinese government has thrown a lot of resources at creating its own EUV technology. I've read everything from they don't have a chance ever to maybe five years and everything in between. So there's a lot of uncertainty about there. And this gets back to the nature of technology because you never know when you're going to have the breakthrough. Right. Um, so if China has the breakthrough in two years and starts being able to do that sort of thing, uh, we're talking about a very different universe. Um, ASML, of course, is a Dutch company. Yep. Um, the Dutch always seem to corner interesting geopolitical <laughs> corners of the world. Like they were an empire, a global empire there for a little bit before the British took over. Um, they're always kind of ahead of the game on that point of view. So shout out to the Dutch listeners. But this also gets to um, the issue of China-EU relations and why the United States was so nervous about that investment deal that the EU and China finally agreed to. China has been trying to put pressure on ASML to sell them EUV equipment. 
And the U.S. government, at least under the Trump administration, was doing everything possible, including threatening sanctions to get ASML not to. And the right. U.S. was winning that sort of battle outright before. So I think you're right in the sense that, um, you know, the, and, and this goes back to the globalization question again, the system, uh, the global economic trading system was built before towards more globalization, and it's going backwards from that sort of thing. So you have these pockets, you have these wide moats, like an ASML, um, that they're there right now, but technology, and you alluded to this in your AI primer, uh, changes so quickly. And, and the Chinese are trying so hard to generate the self-reliance. And it's not just the Chinese, they're probably just the best at it and the closest to it. But if you read um, you know, tech policy coming out of India, coming out of Turkey, coming out of Russia, coming out of France, um, the EU, they're all talking about digital sovereignty. They're all talking about self-reliance. They are all talking about securing these supply chains for themselves. Um, so ASML has a very wide moat today. It's probably why their stock prices, I think it's gone up by a factor of four in the last two years or whatever. Yep. Um, but it's a precarious position, especially because a lot of a lot of people, a lot of smart people, a lot of countries are throwing their weight behind developing that sort of thing because we're in a self-reliance world. We're in a geopolitical world. We're no longer in the globalization world. All right, Chris, <laughs> this is a great episode. Um, let's. Uh, I want to get you out of here with a quick little game of over-under, if that sounds good to you. Oh, great. Let's do it. Um, we've been doing this for the last couple of podcasts, and people love it. People love a kitschy game thing. So here we go. Um, it's very easy. You'll you'll get it. I'll say you know a number over-under, and, and you have to say whether you think it'll be over-under. So we'll start with, uh, I actually posed this one to Cousin Marco when he was on the podcast. Over under 35,000 for the Dow Jones Industrial on January 1st, 2022. Under. Under. Tell me why. Marco was over, by the way, and then said, I believe what he said was, crap, but everybody's over. That means I should probably short them. <laughs> uh, sure. So uh, this is really a simplistic way of thinking, but uh, post crises uh, or post 20% plus drawdowns in the market. Uh, three months following that, uh, for the following 24 months, small caps drastically outperform large caps. Uh, and, you know, as you know, the, the Dow is going to be mostly just large caps. So I think that small will outperform large, one. And two, you saw a very similar dynamic play out with the uh, cyclicals leading uh, after the Trump uh, election. And you're kind of seeing the same thing play out now with uh, after the Biden election, but that uh, cyclical, uh, you know, the cyclicals leading only persisted for a couple of weeks, uh, and then uh, that kind of just fell off. So mm -hmm. I think that you're going to have smalls outperforming large, and then your non-cyclicals uh, most likely outperforming cyclicals moving forward. Uh, but the biggest thing for why I think the Dow is not going to get thirty-five thousand aside from those factors, is that we are going to have a retracement at some point, most likely in the first half of the year. So you're going to then have a bigger hill to climb to get up to 35,000. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, over under $100 for the GameStop price point by the same date. Oh, way under. <laughs> way under. Are you sure? Tell me why. Oh my God. I'm beyond positive. Uh, because uh, right now you've, you've kind of seen it play out. One is, you know, we're 
We're right now way below 100. I don't even know where it is right now. Maybe 60. We are. So it's February 5th at 10, 19 a.m. Central. GameStop is up 33% right now. It's at 71.41. 71.41. Okay. So uh, forever in a day, I think two things. One is people get distracted very easily. And so while, you know, maybe GameStop's the flavor of the week or the flavor of the month, they're going to move on to other stocks. Uh, so that's one. Two is, is that, you know, when I say short term, maybe it's, you know, a month, two months, three months where, you know, these uh, periods of irrational exuberance can uh, can go on for. But I would say over at least a nine month period and then 12 months we're talking about, 10 months, whatever it is, uh, there comes this realization that I need to earn a return on my capital. And if I'm buying a stock at, let's say, I don't even know what the PE is on uh, on GameStop, which is how you should value that stock, you know, there's no possible way that I'm going to earn even an 8% return on my capital just based off of the turnaround nature of GameStop. So I, I don't see it happening. Not even close. All right. Let's hope the, let's hope the Reddit mob doesn't come after you. Oh, they've already um, come after me way too much. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave them to you. Uh, <laughs> uh, over under 30 years to general AI. Oh, I know it hurts, doesn't it? It does. It does. Let's say so 2050. I'm going to say right under. I think we get there around 2050. Wow. Okay. Um, That would be a big deal if that's true. Um, I know. I know. All right. That's good. We'll uh, we'll file that one away and we'll have you back on the pod in 30 years. Um, Hopefully when we're both wildly successful in our endeavors. That's right. Uh, And then last one over under. Uh, and this one hits a little closer to home probably for you uh, in 20. And I got this from a chart um, in one of your uh, primer pieces. I think, I think the survey data was from MIT or something like that, but in over under in the year 2030, 50% of financial services, business processes handled by AI. Hmm, that's a good one. Um, over. Over. All right. Tell me a little bit. So what, what processes and, and what's going to stay in the human realm? So the majority of credit applications, uh, bank account signups, uh, even, you know, trading, um, reporting, all of that can be uh, automated. And automation is a component of artificial intelligence, right? So I think with the majority of what these companies are doing, um, Artificial intelligence will be able to handle the majority of it, and I think I'm I'm refer I'm thinking about the chart that you're referring to. I think it was something like only twelve percent now are between forty one and fifty, or like ten yes, percent, something like that. That's correct, twelve percent. Twelve percent, yeah. Um, because that one really stuck out to me, and we're talking about ten years from now. Uh, and, and so just the nature of of growth in tech, at least from my experience, when it comes to these S curves is, you know, you're going to have this exponential growth at some sort of inflection point. And I think the more that you see companies like Encino, which is essentially a software company for uh, financial services companies, uh, which are utilizing artificial intelligence to provide the services that they do, uh, I think you're going to see just more of that pick up uh, very quickly. You know, we're, we're increasingly becoming more and more digitized uh, you know, we had more data created in the past two years than we had in the history of mankind. 
Uh, and I think that continues. And what that means is just more efficient and better artificial intelligence programs. So I think you have this confluence of events that are going to really force these companies to use more AI than not. All right. Uh, Chris, this was awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. We'll have to have you back on again soon. Okay, man. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.